This is The Extraordinary Story, a podcast about the life of Christ. Jesus Christ, God himself, entered the confusing maze that is our world to show us who we are and to give us his cross as a ladder up and out. This is his story and ours, The Extraordinary Story. Brought to you by Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Written and hosted by Tom Hoops. We will be talking today about the story of the man born blind. And if ever there was a story about life in the maze of this world, it's this one. This man is a representative of each of us and all of us collectively. Born blind, born unable to navigate the world except by touch and sound in the darkness. Until he meets, I guess you already know who he'll meet, but we'll get to that. So I'll be reading the story in the only place it appears, which is the Gospel of John. And it starts in chapter 9, but we are going to start a few verses before that, at the end of chapter 8. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they took up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from his birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be made manifest in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night comes when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. As he said this, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle and anointed the man's eyes with the mud, saying to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back, seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar said, Is not this the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is. Others said, No, but he is like him. He said, I am the man. They said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. The Pharisees asked him again how he had received his sight. And he said to them, He put clay on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? There was a division among them. So again they said to the blind man, What did you say about him since he opened your eyes? He said, He is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? How does he now then see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son, and that he was born blind, but how he now sees we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. For the second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give God the praise, we know that this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have already told you, and you would not listen. 
Why do you want to hear it again? Do you too want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Why, this is a marvel. You do not know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born totally in sin, and you are trying to teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I might believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who speaks to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. So that is the story of the man born blind, and the mystery person that he met was Jesus, who helped him see. But to follow along with the story as it has been unfolding, we should keep in mind that we're still there at the Feast of Tabernacles with Jesus. First, we traveled with him in private up to the feast and talked about how awesome that feast must have been, and we reviewed the ways Jesus considers himself greater than the temple, and we celebrated when he said, Anyone who thirsts, come to me. Next, we observed as he prayed in the Mount of Olives and then said those beautiful words to the woman caught in adultery, and we put ourselves in her place, allowing him to say the same thing to us. Does no one condemn you? Neither do I. Go and sin no more. In both of those cases, his saving actions were accompanied by arguments with religious leaders who didn't want to accept who he is. Today is no exception. Before we get to the story of the man born blind, he drops several more zingers. He tells the Pharisees, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life, while the memory of the lantern lighting ceremony is still fresh in his audience's minds. And he tells them, If you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. He says this at the Feast of Booths, when the Jews are celebrating their freedom from slavery and guidance that God gave them in the desert. So he's using very rich symbolism here, and he ends it all by telling them, before Abraham was, I am. And that's what made them decide to throw stones at him. Before Abraham was, he's the great patriarch. I am, that's the name that God himself told to Moses. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, says the Gospel of John. It's all in the Gospel of John, and it's all extremely suggestive. John has this way of taking symbols and making them real, and taking realism and making it symbolic. That makes it very easy for us to see our own world and our own experience in his, even though it was many, many years ago. We have a different set of cultural leaders who object to Christ, but it's all kind of the same thing. If you tell sexual sinners, sin no more, you will see serious objections from our culture. If you tell people who are caught in the mire of not knowing who or what they are and tell them the truth will make you free, they will say, whose truth? And if you tell them that Jesus Christ is the foundation of every truth they know, they won't take up stones to kill you, probably, but they will drive you out of their midst in one way or another. Anyway, it's a typical Joannine observance that it was right after this conversation 
that Jesus interacted with a man born blind who was there begging at the temple during the festival. Jesus goes from a group of people who are literally blinding themselves and passes a man who is born that way. The faithlessness of the former blinds them, and the faithfulness of the latter gives him sight. His disciples ask Jesus whose sin caused the man's blindness. It's a good question. Whether you want to think of blindness as pointing to faithlessness or ignorance, or if you want to just think of it literally, there are all kinds of ways we can sin that will cause blindness in our children. We can sin by substance abuse in utero to cause real physical problems, or we can sin by neglecting them in some serious way, or simply by not praying with them, not teaching them, to cause spiritual blindness. In this case, though, Jesus says the parents' actions are not at fault. Instead, he was blind from birth so that the works of God may be manifest in him. St. Gregory says there are several reasons we suffer things. First, for punishment, for retribution, getting out of us what's owed, injustice. Second, for rehabilitation, to retrain and improve us. Third, to restrain us, preventing us from doing more harm. Or, fourth, to increase our appreciation of what we have. Jesus says this is the reason this blind man suffers. And we watch him in this story gain a far greater appreciation for what he has than those who were never blind. But Jesus says things here that are highly relevant to the 21st century, as we shall see. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And it was as he said this that he did the things that cured the man. So it's exceedingly strange for him to say that he is the light of the world and has to work while it's still day. If you consider that he just almost got stoned to death by religious leaders and he's literally fleeing from the temple for his life when he says these things. It's a paradox we'll see a lot with Jesus. He is the one being rejected and the one triumphing both at once. We can easily see this same scenario in our day. It looks like the night has fallen, like the night of Jesus has been snuffed out. The night of nihilism has arisen. Every Johannine truth has been turned on its head. Today, they stone the people who complain about adultery, not the adulterers. Today, people say that rejecting truth categories is what sets you free and that belief imprisons you. We no longer teach our children that Jesus is the light of the world, but that Jesus was a falsehood that thwarted history. But it must be said that when the world talks about darkness and light, it always, usually, pretty much always gets it wrong. When I was a kid, they taught us that the dark ages were the years after the fall of the Roman Empire, But now I know that some of the greatest advances in intellectual history took place precisely at those times. And they dubbed the rise of secularism the Enlightenment. But they were way too quick to shrug off the fact that this rise in so-called light came with the rise of the French Revolution and its guillotines, and that it ushered in thinkers from Feuerbach to Marx to Nietzsche, who have not freed us from the shackles of religion so much as they have tied us to whole new masters who are even worse. Marxism in particular is at the root of mass violence in the 20th century, and Nietzsche now reigns supreme in the culture that tries to redefine everything regardless of the consequences in human life. More about that in a minute, but suffice it to say now that we live in the long night of nihilism in the 21st century, 
where anyone can be whatever they want and no one is happy. In other words, we are lost in a maze, and we are about to meet the one who will rescue us from the maze. At any rate, in our story, Jesus is slipping out a side door a few steps ahead of the stone throwers, and it can seem like the height of cluelessness for him to say, I am the light of the world and I must work while it's day. Well, let's just watch what happens. As he said this, he spat on the ground and made mud of the spittle and anointed the man's eyes with the mud, saying to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam. I love that. It is exactly what happens between us and Jesus. Here we are, stuck in our heads, in the midst of arguments about whether truth or denying truth makes us freer, and whether the Enlightenment was darker than the Dark Ages, and he rubs spit and dirt in our eyes to cure us. He says, get out of your head and have contact with the world around you. That is what he always does. Descartes says, I think, therefore I am, reducing himself to his brain waves. The Gospel of John, which has already told us that the Word of God, the Logos, the logic of God, became flesh and dwelt among us, now shows the Word of God, the Logos, the logic of God, spitting in the dirt and using the spit mud to rub on a blind man's eyes. Furthermore, the man born blind is the model for a seeker of truth. He doesn't banter with Jesus about light and freedom the way a Pharisee might. He does what he is told. He goes to a pool that's literally called scent and comes back able to see. He will eventually express how changed he is by words that we all know by heart because we have all sung them. I once was blind, but now I see. We know his words from the song Amazing Grace, but I think there are lots of other songs that express how he must have felt at that moment. I spoke about Alanis Morissette last episode, but her words are relevant here also, I think. Her love song, Head Over Feet, captures what it's like to fall in love when she sings, I am aware now. Maybe you have to actually hear it to get it. I am aware now, she says. That's how it feels when you fall in love and falling in love suddenly gives the world meaning. I was blind, but now I see. I am aware now. That brilliantly captures up what true love is like. It's like seeing for the first time, like waking up. In the musical Les Mis, there's a great duet where Marius and Cosette fall in love and the experience is just overwhelming to both of them. He says, Cosette, I don't know what to say. And she says, then make no sound. He says, I am lost. And she says, I am found. Falling in love with somebody resets life such that everything feels different and you feel different. If life made sense to you before, now you feel lost. If life was confusing before, now you feel found. Well, this is how the blind beggar man felt. He felt found. He was aware now. We get a kind of secondhand look at how changed he is in his interaction with three different groups his neighbors, the Pharisees, and his parents. These three interactions also show three stages in conversion. First, his neighbors argue about whether this is the guy they remember or some different guy. They say, he is like him. He has to tell them, I am the man. Think about how different he must have been. First of all, he is no longer unfocused, but focused. Second, he's no longer standing back and begging. He's now striving forward on his own two feet. This is what happens to every convert. We become more focused. We become less standoffish. And notice how bold he is, too. They ask him how he was changed, and he launches right into the whole story, telling them what Jesus did for him. But he has a ways to go still. He calls Jesus just a man. 
we see him take another step as soon as he's confronted by the Pharisees. The Pharisees accuse Jesus of being a sinner, and the man instinctively reacts to that and calls him a prophet instead. This happens to us. First, we share our delight with our neighbors. Then, when someone challenges our faith, we go on defense. If you know anyone who has reverted to their faith, you've probably seen this. First, they walk around grinning, and then they are suddenly apologetics experts, able to answer any question that comes to them. That's kind of the first stage of conversion, the discovery stage, so I'm going to call it here. The Pharisees then go on an independent investigation of this so-called miracle. They ask the parents if he was truly born blind. This is a very telling interaction, too. The parents are willing to acknowledge that he is their son and that he was born blind, but they have nothing to say about his current state. They know the Pharisees have said that they would be kicked out of the synagogue, effectively excommunicated if they believe in Jesus. Well, the same thing happens to us. Often our conversion drives a wedge between us and our family, and there are social consequences for being an enthusiastic Christian. Suddenly you're not a normal person anymore, but a religious type. And after all that time of not being a religious type, you are probably enmeshed in social circles that are suspicious of religious types. Your family, in fact, is probably especially suspicious of religious types, and they are totally suspicious of you. And often, if you're like me, you don't help matters much because you're kind of a jerk about your <laughs> newfound faith. They remember the other kicks you've been on in your life. You were really into nutrition for a while, but that kind of fell away. You were really into politics for a while. You were into economic philosophy or literature or history or whatever it was. They figure your new religion is like that. Anyway, we see the same phenomenon in this man who was born blind. His parents say, I know he's weak and clueless. If he says he sees now, well, that's his problem. I can't vouch for that. So that's the next stage of a conversion. Stage one is discovery. And then when discovery meets opposition, stage two becomes certainty. You clamp down on what you believe holding on to it tighter than ever because you realize that the world is trying to take it away. Then, the man born blind gets personally hauled in front of the inquisitors to find out what is really going on here. And they tell him Jesus is a sinner. Quote, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I know is that I was blind and now I see, end quote. They keep pushing him and he keeps getting even more and more snarky. He says, well, this is a marvel. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard of that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. End quote. Well, that gets him excommunicated. He's cast out, is what the passage says, but the sense here is that he's cast out of the synagogue, no longer a member of Jewish polite society. That's the next stage in a conversion. You saw how he went from discovery to certainty in order to guard what he believed. But then when he gets a little snarky, I see him headed toward controversy. What happens is people go in two different directions here. One group decides to hate institutional religion and leave it all together. They understand that religious leaders don't like them anymore and they don't like them back. Another group kind of grinds on their problems with institutional religions and obsesses about it, listening to critics of the church and entering into one controversy after the other. 
In this story, there is no great reason for this blind man to feel triumphant. All he has done is leave his family unwilling to acknowledge him and then best some Pharisees in an argument. But many of us get satisfied at this stage in our conversion. We say, who cares about my family? If they can't handle the truth, that's their problem. And we see how we get the better of opponents and arguments and feel really, really satisfied at that. We read and reread our comment on Twitter or Reddit or Facebook and feel like we are truly impressive Christians. At any rate, we impress ourselves. And we decide that what the world needs is more of our brilliance and more of our comments on posts about religion. So controversy takes the front place, and instead of continually reliving the joy of our healing contact with Jesus, we start continually reliving the experience of our victories over ideological opponents. So we go from discovery to certainty to controversy to... I don't know what I should call this one, judgment, pride, ego drama. But thank God a different next step is possible. Once you go from discovery to certainty to controversy to pride, you don't have to grind on in disagreement. You can go next to encounter and surrender. That's what the blind man does. Jesus heard that they had cast the blind man out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I might believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who speaks to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. And that is a beautiful lesson for us in the 21st century. How do you get where you can accept Jesus? First of all, you have to realize that we were all blind from birth. Humanity is blind from birth. As St. Augustine put it, The blind man here is the human race. Blindness came upon the first man by reason of sin, and from him we all derive it. Jesus is the light of the world. We are all born blind to that light, sinners, enemies of God, ready to serve ourselves via the world, the flesh, the devil, instead of our Creator. It can seem unfair that we were born already ruined, as Bob Dylan put it. But only by accepting this can we avoid all the trouble that comes from trying to create our own reality, because that's what happened. You can see all of Christian history as following those same steps the blind man goes through. As we discover the shape of our maze, get convinced about the way to go through our maze, and then hit obstacles. First was discovery. Jesus impressed the whole world and the new church, but everything was new and we had to discover who he was. Like the man born blind, many Christians called Jesus just a man, as we tried to sort out what his mysterious teachings mean. There were the Arian heresies that said Jesus was just a man, or the Docetists, or the Nestorian heresies, various Gnostic heresies, and on and on. Yet, like the man born blind, we impressed our neighbors with our changes. The neighbors of the church said, you're somehow different, but I'm not sure how. And eventually they said, see how they love one another. And we found ourselves in the right way. After that was the age of certainty, You can see our progress maybe in 500-year periods. The Roman Empire fell right before the year 500, and Benedictines spread monasticism throughout the world after that, and monks preserved the faith, and Christendom was established. The Church conquered the Roman Empire east and west. There was Pope Leo the Great, Pope Gregory the Great, popes who knew who we were, and paganism fell in nation after nation. In the Great Schism around the year 1000, you see stumbles beginning. 
But for 500 years, the church carries on in strength. Maybe the high watermark of this certainty period is around the year 1500, when St. Peter's Basilica opens. But from 1500 to 2000 come the years of controversy. First, there's the Reformation and all the division that follows that. And you see the ones who are born blind get into arguments about who's right and who's wrong, and the arguments all end in a new ego drama, a new era of pride. Prideful ego dramas are sad, not happy, and if we look back on the darkness of the Enlightenment, we see a lot of sadness. The poet Matthew Arnold sadly looked out at Dover Beach and said, The sea of faith was once two at the full, and round earth's shore lay like the folds of a bright girdle furled. And now I only hear its melancholy, long, withdrawing roar. In a different poem, Matthew Arnold found himself wandering between two worlds, one dead, the other powerless to be born, with nowhere to lay my head. Thomas Hardy wrote of God's funeral and said, I did not forget that what was mourned for, I too once prized. And now here we are in the long night of nihilism. Our forefathers discovered that God isn't real and set about to cope as best they could. Thomas Carlyle said, There is no religion. There is no God. Man has lost his soul and vainly seeks antiseptic salt. We've been trying to find some way to deal with godlessness. One way was existentialism, where we basically have to create our own purpose and bring our own meaning into our own lives. And we watched that crush people who were not up to the task of inventing reality. As Sartre put it, for if indeed existence precedes essence, in other words, if the fact that we exist is fundamental and not what kind of thing we are, then, quote, one will never be able to explain one's action by reference to a given and specific human nature. In other words, there is no determinism. Man is free. Man is freedom. Nor, on the other hand, if God does not exist, are we provided with any values or commands that could legitimize our behavior. We are left alone, without excuse, that is what I mean when I say that man is condemned to be free. Condemned because he did not create himself, yet is nevertheless at liberty, and from the moment that he is thrown into this world, he is responsible for everything he does. End quote. Now, if that's hard to understand, I think it's also explained by something Nietzsche said. Now he said, quote, One thing is needful, to give style to one's character a great and rare art. It is practiced by those who survey all the strengths and weaknesses of their nature and then fit them into an artistic plan until every one of them appears as art and reason and even weaknesses delight the eye. End quote. So Nietzsche says our job is to create our own style, our own identity. And he added that some of us aren't up to it. Quote, it is the weak characters without power over themselves that hate the constraint of style. End quote. But he said, quote, For one thing is needful, that a human being should attain satisfaction with himself, whether it be by means of this or that poetry or art. Only then is he a human being at all tolerable to behold. End quote. So these are the culture's ways of dealing with the crisis of meaning, and they're crushingly difficult. There are also false religious ways of doing this. Liturgy is extremely important. Ecclesial governance, church governance, is extremely important, and politics is extremely important. But we can argue forever about the liturgy, the pope, and political matters, 
and not take one step closer to Jesus Christ. Thank God there are some smart people who are involved in those discussions, and I'm not saying they should stand down. But I would say that for most of us, this is a way of turning the story of Jesus into an ego drama about us, instead of turning our lives into a theodrama about him. We can try to find the answers to every argument, or try to point out all the evil in the world, or argue endlessly about everything the church does. But that seems to feel awfully close to another proposal for dealing with meaninglessness, and that's absurdism. In absurdism, we find some kind of strength in the very act of pushing forward while admitting that the world has no meaning. As Albert Camus put it, it amounts to pushing a rock up a hill forever like Sisyphus and enjoying it. And that's where our personal stories can take a step away from the story of our age. We can realize something that these poor nihilists and absurdists don't know or have forgotten. Jesus is real. He really can reach us. And we find him not by exhausting ourselves with research and seeking, or by using our own resources to get to the bottom of his miracles, but simply by worshiping, resting, and accepting. But to stick with pop music, the right attitude is in the Rolling Stones song from Exile on Main Street, that must have some gospel origin story, but in it, Mick Jagger sings, I don't want to walk or talk about Jesus. I just want to see his face. I just want to see his face. I just want to see his face. That's all that the man born blind wants to do. And that's the simplicity of the story of the man born blind. He came out of darkness and rested in the joy of the light of the world and allowed truth to set him free. We know that the light of the world has already dawned. The truths of Christianity that transform the world can transform it still. The Enlightenment ended in nihilism, so we can turn back to what Pope Francis and Pope Benedict called the light of truth. And we know that all that freedom promised by the loss of faith was no freedom at all. People are economic slaves, slaves to sin, slaves to their circumstances, slaves to fashion, slaves to anxiety. And the people who are truly free are those who can see the world for what it is, through God's eyes. This is the good news that the simple people of the world know. While the brainiacs argue about what is truth, we go get in the confession line and the communion line and beg Jesus to touch us. Like the man born blind, we were trudging through the darkness of the world, blind to its meaning. And off to our left somewhere in the darkness, in the maze, there's a commotion where they're trying to kill the man named Jesus. Then he touched us, rubbed us with his spit like a mom kissing away the pain of a skinned knee by her love alone. And the earthiness and grittiness of healing someone with spit mud tells us something about God. He's not afraid to get his hands dirty. It brings two images to mind. First is one of the two creation accounts in Genesis. Then the Lord God formed man out of the dust in the ground. Second is the image of baptism, which is referenced elsewhere in John as bathing. Put the two images together and you see what is happening. Jesus is recreating the man. His sight is made new, the way the first Adam's sight was made new. The same happens to us at baptism. We are baptized in the waters and emerge from them new and unrecognizable to our neighbors. Does that happen to us? I think it should. And the man born blind becomes a walking testimonial to Jesus Christ after he emerges from the waters of his baptism. Do we? 
doesn't speak vaguely about his cure to his neighbors. He gives Jesus Christ full credit by name. Then the Pharisees object to his words about Jesus, but he doesn't backtrack from them either. Then, after even his parents reject him, he comes to further insight and boldness. He calls it amazing that the Pharisees do not know where Jesus is from, telling them, if this man were not from God, he would not be able to do anything. His new sight has allowed him to see what those close to him cannot. Jesus Christ is someone special. He may have been rejected and underappreciated, but he gained something indescribably great. He met his creator and knew the meaning of his life. One day for each of us, Jesus came into our lives, and that is when our troubles started. But that was also the day when troubles were dwarfed by an infinite gift, the blessing of faith, which always brings peace. That's when our stories became more difficult than they were before and more simple when we became more humble than we were before and more confident, where we learned to live not just for the ego drama of our personal stories, but for the great theodrama of Jesus Christ's extraordinary story. The Extraordinary Story is written by Tom Hoops and produced by Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Benedictine College is transforming culture in America through our mission of community, faith, and scholarship. If you enjoy this podcast, please follow us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Leave a review and share with a friend. Help us tell others about the extraordinary story.